Good morning. Um, as was just stated, we have spent uh, the past three months uh, carefully looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, today we will be concluding our series uh, by looking at the Last Commandment. Now, before we uh, jump into the Tenth Commandment, let me just give you a brief overview and uh, offer some overarching comments. Uh, first, the Ten Commandments, uh, as we see here, one to ten, can actually be broken up into two parts. You can break the Ten Commandments up from, verse, or from commands one to four and commands five to ten. Commands one to four are in relation to God, while commands five and ten are in relation to man and other, um, and to man and to the earthly things. Uh, the best way to sum up the commandments uh, is this. Uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this command to love really sums up the Ten Commandments. Now, if we look at the second half, if we look at uh, commands uh, 6 to 10, which we have been focusing our attention on, um, you know, at first glance, they might seem to be uh, these random, unrelated commands. Uh, for instance, um, you know, don't uh, murder, uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal. However, uh, if you really get into it, you'll see that there is much intent behind the Ten Commandments. Uh, there is a comprehensive purpose behind it. For instance, if you look at the Sixth Commandment, uh, do not murder, it's about preserving life. It's about protecting life. The Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery, is about preserving marriage and the family. Uh, the Eighth Commandment is about preserving possessions and protecting society. The Ninth Commandment is about preserving justice. And so we find here that all these commands that we, that we have gone through, uh, they're not just arbitrary. God is not just listing off these commands. There is intent and there is deep wisdom. And I say this because I think there is, uh, in many of us, a tendency to view the Ten Commandments as being something rudimentary, as being something simple or antiquated. But the Ten Commandments are not those things. They are actually foundational. The Ten Commandments are foundational for society. They are foundational for the Christian. And of course, things that are foundational are at times not exciting but things that are foundational are of utmost importance. And so I just want to say this before we move on from this series. Uh, please, in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, do not be reluctant to come back to the Ten Commandments. There will be moments when you are looking to grow as a Christian, and when you are doing so, I encourage you to come back to the Ten Commandments. Remember, throughout church history, the Ten Commandments were always one of the main sources of discipleship. And so, having said that, let us now look at the Tenth Commandment. This is how it reads. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the Tenth Commandment, and today, this is the outline. These are the three questions I want to raise and answer. First, what does it mean to covet? 
Second, why is coveting so wrong? And third, how does the gospel address coveting? So first, what does it mean to covet? Well, coveting is, it's not just simply noticing someone's belongings or possessions, okay? It's okay to notice things. For instance, hey, that's a very beautiful house you have. Or, you have a great job. Or, your children are so well behaved. It is okay to notice these things. Further, to notice and to rejoice is also okay. So, you can go from, hey, that's a beautiful home you have. I'm so happy for you. Right? I'm not being sarcastic. It's really rejoicing. Okay? Or, you have a great job. And you really deserve it. You are a hard worker. I mean, you, you are grinding. I'm so happy for you. And your children are so well behaved. I mean, wh- how can you rejoice with this, right? Except by saying, praise the Lord. <laughs> your children are so well behaved. Thank God your children are so great. Okay. So to notice and to rejoice is not coveting. But what is coveting? is when you notice and then you start to desire to have that which is not yours. And so using these examples, that's a beautiful home you have. Why can't we afford that? Why is my husband, why does he lack so much ambition? Why can't we get that? Or you have a great job, but if only I had your parents, I mean, I would be so much further than you. You had it made. And your children are so well behaved. Honey, why can't you parent like they do? You see, to covet means to not just notice and rejoice, but to covet means you notice and then you desire that. You start to desire and want something that does not belong to you, but belongs to someone else. And because coveting is a desire, this last commandment that we find in the Ten Commandments addresses not an action, but it addresses the heart. It addresses our heart. Now, some might consider uh, this to be a really odd ending. I mean, to speak of desire, to speak of the heart as a law is a very odd thing to do. I mean, if you think about the Ten Commandments, right, it starts with something so lofty, so heavenly. You shall have no gods before me. And then the Ten Commandments segues into uh, something practical, into uh, criminal offenses, into things that tangibly harm other people, right? Murder, committing adultery, stealing. But then it ends with something so carnal. It ends with donkeys, not looking at your neighbor's donkey and wanting it. I mean, you'd imagine, right, this is the Ten Commandments. God himself wrote this with his own finger, and you would expect that the Ten Commandments would end with a bang. 
I mean, it was building up to this. It, we were crescendoing. But then all of a sudden, the last commandment, it just seems to fall off with this unimaginative, don't look at your neighbor's ass, right? Don't look at that and want that. Your neighbor's possessions, his servants, his, his donkey, his, his wife, don't want You know, I think this is, the Tenth Commandment, is a fitting end to God's law. You see, the Sixth Commandment is about taking someone's life, right? Sixth Commandment says, don't take someone's life. The Seventh Commandment says, don't take someone's wife. The Eighth Commandment says, don't take someone's possessions. The Ninth Commandment says, don't take someone's name. And the Tenth Commandment ends by saying, And don't even think about it. Don't even want it. The Ten Commandments ends with the subtle desires of the human heart. Sure, we might not murder or commit adultery or even steal or bear false witness, but coveting. This, I think, we are all guilty of. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism on the Tenth Commandment, he writes this. This last commandment, then, is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Martin Luther says, this is the best way to end because here is where we are all now found guilty. You know, the great apostle Paul, before he met Jesus Christ, he was a Pharisee. He was someone zealous for the law. The apostle Paul was the model Jew. But Paul says, he confesses, that when he was a Jew, zealously trying to keep God's law, this commandment, the 10th commandment, tripped him up. He says that this commandment was goading him. In other words, it was clawing at his conscience because even Paul, he was fairly confident that he was keeping the entire law, but this one command, not to covet, this command that was a matter of the heart, this command broke him. And because of that, Paul, he ultimately had to look for salvation outside of the law and a righteousness outside of himself. This commandment, the 10th commandment, is an unassuming dagger. This is about desiring. It is about the heart. It addresses that which we hide so well. And our Lord is saying, do not do these things. Now, we have to ask, as the second question, why is it wrong, right, I mean, what if I desire someone else's career? What if I desire someone else's spouse? I mean, as long as I don't act on it, what's the big deal? Well, because coveting is a heart issue, because it deals with desire, right? that means it's internal, and it means that it's also well hidden. Covetousness is something that's covert and it rarely rears its ugly head. Coveting doesn't appear publicly and say, look, here I am, I'm Mr. Covet. And so unless, 
unless we are intentional about understanding this, we won't get down to the seriousness and the dangers of coveting. So allow me uh, at this time to really explain why coveting is so wrong, why God commands this. Let's go a little bit deeper into the sin. First, covetousness has a, a few ugly cousins that are easily identifiable. Some of these ugly cousins are ingratitude, uh, envy, but the one that I want to talk about today is the ugly cousin, discontentment. Discontentment and covetousness are closely related. We covet because we are dissatisfied or we are discontent with our present situation. And this is what we have to understand. You know, have you ever been in a relationship with someone? You had some suspicion that they were not kosher. They were not good. They were not, uh, that person wasn't a good person. You had some suspicion, but you weren't quite sure because uh, the person was uh, really subtle and really covert. But then you meet the person's friends. You meet the people that he or she hangs out with, their close people. And then you meet their ugly cousins and you realize, oh no, I need to back away. That's a lot what coveting is. Coveting on the outside seems okay, but once you understand who coveting is related to, then you see how ugly it is. And one of coveting's close confidants is discontentment being dissatisfied. You know, there is a, uh, a sense of irony here in today's passage. Um, you know, the Israelites were the first people to have received God's law. But the funny thing is, the Israelites were deeply discontent. They were always unsatisfied with their present condition. Even though they've been saved from slavery, even though they were free, even though they were headed towards a land flowing with milk and honey, they were always so discontent. The Israelites, we find them doing three things always. They're always grumbling about the present, they're always bitter about the past, and they are always anxious about the future. They were so discontent. And as a result, the Israelites became covetous. They started to covet. They started to covet their former lives back in Egypt. They were saying things like, oh, how good it was when we were back in Egypt. Oh, do you remember those days when we were slaves? Oh, those days were so good. They were so discontent that the first people that they came in contact with, which were uh, the Moabites, one of the first people, the Moabites, when they met them, they immediately went after their women and they took on their idols. I mean, the Israelites, they were so dissatisfied, they were so discontent with their own women, the men, that once they saw women of a different race, they quickly ran to them. They were so dissatisfied with manna, they were so dissatisfied with Moses, they were so discontent with God, that the first non-Jew they saw, the first idol they saw, they just ran to it quickly and accepted it immediately. We find the Israelites throughout this wilderness journey 
all that they are doing is grumbling, they are complaining, they are ungrateful, they are discontented people. They are never happy or satisfied. You know, from then till now, I'm not sure how much has actually changed. We as a people always seem to be discontent. Uh, there was a recent interview that uh, I had the chance to watch. Uh, I thought it was one of the more fascinating interviews this year. Uh, but it was an interview done by um, a sports journalist by the name of Bill Simmons. He sat down and he had the chance to interview uh, the commissioner of the National Basketball Association. His name is Adam Silver. He sat down at this conference and they were doing this interview. And Bill Simmons, he asked the commissioner a question. He says, what do you think about player mobility? Now, to give you just a little bit of context, uh, right now, one of the biggest issues in the National Basketball Association is player mobility. Players are constantly changing teams and hopping cities, even before their contracts are up. I think uh, the statistics are that I think 12 of the top 15 basketball players have switched teams in the past four years. And so Bill Simmons asked, why do you think this is happening? And the commissioner says this. He says, it's because our players are unhappy. He says, our players are deeply unsatisfied. And he says, yes, today's social media world, it only perpetuates this. But he says, I've noticed that players are anxious never feeling content with their present circumstances and always feeling the need to move teams and cities to go out and search after something that they think will make them happy. And Adam Silver says this, these young men are people who make millions of dollars playing a sport and they make even more with their side businesses. They have money, they have power, they have prestige, yet they are discontent, they are not happy. You know, I think discontentment is symptomatic of every generation. Every generation suffers from discontentment. It's so common, and I think many of us suffer from it. But let me just say this. Discontentment is an extremely dangerous position to be in because there is no situation there is no change of circumstance that will rescue you from discontentment. Being discontent is literally a black hole. You will not get out. And discontentment is the breeding grounds of an army of sins. It will lead to countless sins in your life. Uh, a pastor out in Michigan uh, Jason Halopoulos said this, discontentment may be the greatest trap in our culture today. Discontentment may be greater than lust, greater than greed, and even lying because discontentment leads to all these other sins. It tends to be a wellspring of iniquity. I have yet to meet an individual who engaged in an affair without first suffering from discontentment. 
I have yet to speak with a drunkard, a gossiper, liar, or idolater of body or rest or recreation without them alluding to discontentment first. And it feels like the entire world is colluding to stir up discontentment within us. Every billboard, every commercial, every brochure tends to communicate, you deserve and you need more. Friends, I want you to be deeply aware of how dangerous this sin is. Covetousness snuffs out any sentiment of thanksgiving. Covetousness produces ingratitude. Coveting undermines the appreciation of what one has and focuses only on what one lacks. Covetousness stems from entitlement and envy. Covetousness chokes out and ruins relationships. Covetousness is closely tied to discontentment. Some of us might think, you know what, so what? Is it, is it wrong to desire something else? And Scripture says, yes, because that condition of your heart, of never being happy, of never being content, will suck you up. And so the third question as we continue on is, how does the gospel address covetousness? How does the gospel address the sin of coveting? Well, someone a long time ago, a very wise man, once said this, if you want to get out of this, this is what you have to do. First, you have to understand that all of life is suffering. Second, you have to understand that suffering is caused by desire, okay? Third, perfect peace can be reached when our desires are stopped, when we stop desiring. And fourth, we can be freed from our desire by living a moral life. Do you know who said this? Gautama Buddha said this. If you agree with this, I want you to know this is not from Jesus. This is from Buddhism. This is the Four Noble Truths. You know, uh, <laughs> You know, when I was in seminary, uh, I, was, uh, I was studying with uh, a bunch of men who were uh, Asian, and uh, they were, most of them were really short. They were short, stubby Asian men. And we were all studying to be pastors together at that time, and one of my friends remarked, he said this, he said, you know, why is it that when we're supposed to look like Jesus and look more like him and grow more in his image, the truth is, we look more like Buddha. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was so funny. Uh, anyway, uh, these are the four noble truths, and this is not what Jesus teaches. Other religions may uh, point to this solution, that the only way to be content is to get rid of your desires. The only way to be completely free from coveting is to uh, lose your desire. That's what Buddhism teaches. That's what Hinduism teaches. But Christianity is different. Jesus is different. The gospel remedy to covetousness is not in suffocating our desires, but in satisfying our desires. In other words, the gospel solution to our covetous hearts is not by eliminating our seemingly insatiable desire. But the solution is in offering something so amazing 
that our endless desires are actually quenched. This is how the gospel addresses our coveting hearts. You know, Jesus doesn't come on the scene and he doesn't say, oh, you're desiring? That's so wrong. You've got to get rid of that. No, he's saying, you're desiring? I will meet that and I will fulfill that. You see, the Bible acknowledges that in all of us there is a deep longing. That desire is a part of our human DNA. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11, a passage that I allude to often, tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. In other words, to desire something is a part of our makeup. It is something that we cannot do without. So it is only right, it is only natural that we desire something deeper, that we want something higher. But Scripture at the same time tells us that this desire will never be met with something or someone from this world. That's why Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, listen, I have better bread. No, he says, I have bread of a different kind, one that doesn't spoil or fade. Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, my water is better. My water is purified. My water is reverse osmostatized. You know, my water is from the mountains of Everest. No, he doesn't say that. He says, my water is not from here. And if you drink of my water, you will never be thirsty again. See, the Bible teaches us that desire and ambition are not wrong, but it is wrong when we seek to fill that desire with anything less than Jesus himself. You know, I know many of us in this room are discontent. We are not happy with our present situation. But I find that often many of you console yourselves with hope. You deal with your discontentment by thinking, wait, I'm not happy now, but when I get married, then I'm going to be content. You haven't hung around enough married people yet, if you think that. Those of you who think, I'm not happy now, but wait till I graduate and get that job. Wait till I finish my studies and finally secure myself out there then I will be happy. Many of us fill our desire or our discontentment with hope. Hope that things are going to change. But friends, as I said earlier, discontentment is a black hole. A change in circumstance or situations will never get you out of it. You know, I find more recently myself that I've been dealing with uh, some discontentment. And I think I know why I've been so discontent. It's because now rarely do I, uh, rarely am I surprised. And because of that, rarely am I satisfied. What, what do I mean? Well, you know, gone are the days where I, you know, simply just walk into a restaurant without knowing what that restaurant is about, without reading all the reviews, without seeing all the pictures, without hearing all the comments and the critiques. Rarely do I stay at a place without looking everything up and seeing all the good and the bad. 
Rarely do I even meet people without first social, you know, looking them up on social media, looking them up on LinkedIn to see who they are. And I find that nowadays, whenever I have any sort of interaction, there's no element of surprise, there's no element of satisfaction. I'm always like, it was okay, it was okay. You know, and, but then I started to think, when is it that I'm really satisfied? And I, I started catching myself, you know, going to the Bible in my own devotion, in my own quiet time, without much expectation, thinking like, you know what, this is the Word of God I'm familiar with. But every single time I go to it, and I go to the Lord in prayer, I'm satisfied beyond words. I'm content. You know, Tim Urban, who is a writer, once said this. He said that our generation has wildly optimistic expectations. And the reason why we have these huge, huge expectations is not because we want green lawns or even a lush green lawn. He says the reason why we are so optimistic is because what we really want are unicorns and they don't exist. Well, friends, I'm here today to tell you if you have yet to discover something outside of you, something that will satisfy your every inkling and your every desire, I urge you and I invite you to come and taste of Jesus himself. This is something that unless you actually experience, unless you actually experience that Jesus is enough, you will never know. So, how, how should we uh, approach this? Well, how should we conclude? Well, I want to draw your attention to uh, Paul once again. Remember I told you Paul, he was someone who had uh, wrestled with the uh, Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment, and um, this is what Paul says. After he had met Christ, he says this, in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is Paul after having struggled with the Ten Commandments as a Jew, trying to understand how is it that I, I can actually be content and no longer covet, he meets Jesus. And after he meets Jesus, this is what Paul says, I have learned to be content. He doesn't say, I have achieved contentment or I have attained contentment. He says, I have learned it. Paul is saying, you know, circumstances will never bring about contentment. Circumstances, a change in circumstance will never change your dissatisfied attitude. But he says, I have learned it. I've learned it. And he goes on to say, you know what, I've been through everything in life, but I've learned what it means to be content. He even calls it a secret. And he has learned this secret because he has come to the fountain of Jesus and he has drank. Do you know what Paul says immediately after this? You know what Paul says immediately after this? He says, 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of our favorite verses, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, comes after Paul describing how he had learned how to be content. He had discovered the secret of contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, who's a um, Puritan pastor, said this, a contented man, though he is most contented with the least things in the world, yet he is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage, but all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. The Bible teaches us that we will never be satisfied until we have met Christ himself. But in this passage in this life, whatever comes our way, because we have Jesus, we can be content in whatever circumstances. Let me just end with this one story. It comes from Jesus himself. He teaches this story. Um, This is from Matthew 13. Jesus tells a story about a merchant. And it seems like this merchant was well off, but he was never really satisfied. He was never really content. This merchant kept looking and looking and looking. Because even though he had a lot, he couldn't find that one pearl that would satisfy him. So he goes on and on and on, and he searches and he searches and he searches. And he finds one. He says, this is it. And when he finds that one pearl that is going to bring him contentment and satisfaction, He goes off, and he sells everything that he has, and he buys it. This merchant, who is so unhappy, looking and looking and looking, finds the kingdom of heaven. And finally, his insatiable thirst, his insatiable findings, his journey was quenched. Friends, this is something that Unless you experience, you will never know. And so if you are in a position of longing and desiring today of something more, of something greater, I invite you to come to Jesus at this time. Join me in prayer.